Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Chapter 15 of North and South by Elizabeth Gaskell. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Marianne. Chapter 15. Masters and Men. Thought fights with thought. Outsprings a spark of truth from the collision of the sword and shield. W. S. Lander. Margaret, said her father the next day, we must return Mrs. Thornton's call. Your mother is not very well and thinks she cannot walk so far, but you and I will go this afternoon. As they went, Mr. Hale began about his wife's health with a kind of veiled anxiety which Margaret was glad to see awakened at last. "'Did you consult the doctor, Margaret? Did you send for him?' "'No, Papa. You spoke of his coming to see me. Now I was well. But if I only knew of some good doctor, I would go this afternoon, and ask him to come, for I am sure Mamma is seriously indisposed.' She put the truth thus plainly and strongly, because her father had so completely shut his mind against the idea when she had last named her fears. But now the case was changed. He answered in a despondent tone, "'Do you think she has any hidden complaint? Do you think she is really ill? Has Dixon said anything? Oh, Margaret, I am haunted by the fear that our coming to Milton has killed her. My poor Maria!' "'Oh, Papa, don't imagine such things,' said Margaret, shocked. She is not well, that is all. Many a one is not well for a time, and with good advice gets better and stronger than ever. But has Dixon said anything about her? No. You know Dixon enjoys making a mystery out of trifles, and she has been a little mysterious about Mamma's health, which has alarmed me rather, that is all. Without any reason, I dare say. You know, Papa, you said the other day I was getting fanciful. I hope and trust you are. But don't think of what I said, then. I'd like you to be fanciful about your mother's health. Don't be afraid of telling me your fancies. I like to hear them, though, I dare say, I spoke as if I was annoyed. But we will ask Mrs. Thornton if she can tell us of a good doctor. We won't throw away our money on any but someone first-rate. Say, we turn up this street— the street did not look as if it could contain any house large enough for Mrs. Thornton's habitation. Her son's presence never gave any impression as to the kind of house he lived in, but unconsciously Margaret had imagined that tall, massive, handsomely dressed Mrs. Thornton must live in a house of the same character as herself. Now Marlborough Street consisted of long rows of small houses, with a blank wall here and there. At least, that was all they could see from the point at which they entered it. "'He told me he lived in Marlborough Street, I'm sure,' said Mr. Hale, with a much perplexed air. "'Perhaps it is one of the economies he still practices, to live in a very small house. But here are plenty of people about. 
Let me ask. She accordingly inquired of a passer-by, and was informed that Mr. Thornton lived close to the mill, and had the factory lodge door pointed out to her, at the end of the long dead wall they had noticed. The lodge door was like a common garden door. On one side of it were great closed gates for the ingress and egress of lorries and wagons. The lodge-keeper admitted them into a great oblong yard, on one side of which were offices for the transaction of business, on the opposite an immense, many-windowed mill, whence proceeded the continual clank of machinery and the long, groaning roar of the steam-engine, enough to deafen those who lived within the enclosure. Opposite to the wall, along which the street ran, on one of the narrow sides of the oblong, was a handsome, stone-coped house, blackened, to be sure, by the smoke, but with paint, windows, and steps kept scrupulously clean. It was evidently a house which had been built some fifty or sixty years. The stone facings, the long, narrow windows, and the number of them, the flights of steps up to the front door, ascending from either side and guarded by a railing, all witnessed to its age. Margaret only wondered why people who could afford to live in so good a house, and keep it in such perfect order, did not prefer a much smaller dwelling in the country, or even some suburb, not in the continual whirl and din of the factory. Her unaccustomed ears could hardly catch her father's voice, as they stood on the steps awaiting the opening of the door. The yard, too, with the great doors in the dead wall as a boundary, was but a dismal lookout for the sitting-rooms of the house, as Margaret found when they had mounted the old-fashioned stairs, and been ushered into the drawing-room, the three windows of which went over the front door and the room on the right-hand side of the entrance. There was no one in the drawing-room. It seemed as though no one had been in it since the day when the furniture was bagged up with as much care as if the house was to be overwhelmed with lava and discovered a thousand years hence. The walls were pink and gold. The pattern on the carpet represented bunches of flowers on a light ground, but it was carefully covered up in the centre by a linen drugget, glazed and colourless. The window-curtains were lace. Each chair and sofa had its own particular veil of netting or knitting. Great alabaster groups occupied every flat surface, safe from dust under their glass shades. In the middle of the room, right under the bagged-up chandelier, was a large circular table, with smartly bound books arranged at regular intervals around the circumference of its polished surface, like gaily-coloured spokes of a wheel. Everything reflected light. Nothing absorbed it. The whole room had a painfully spotted, spangled, speckled look about it, which impressed Margaret so unpleasantly that she was hardly conscious of the peculiar cleanliness required to keep everything so white and pure in such an atmosphere, or of the trouble that must be willingly expended to secure that effect of icy, snowy discomfort. Wherever she looked there was evidence of care and labor, but not care and labor to produce ease, to help on habits of tranquil home employment, solely to ornament, and then to preserve ornament from dirt or destruction. They had leisure to observe, and to speak to each other in low voices, before Mrs. Thornton appeared. They were talking of what all the world might hear, but it is a common effect of such a room as this to make people speak low, as if unwilling to awaken the unused echoes. At last Mrs. Thornton came in, rustling in handsome black silk, as was her wont, her muslins and laces rivaling, not excelling, the pure whiteness of the muslins and netting of the room. Margaret explained how it was that her mother could not accompany them to return Mrs. Thornton's call, 
but in her anxiety not to bring back her father's fears too vividly, she gave but a bungling account, and left the impression on Mrs. Thornton's mind that Mrs. Hales was some temporary or fanciful fine ladyish indisposition, which might have been put aside had there been a strong enough motive, or that if it was too severe to allow her to come out that day, the call might have been deferred. Remembering, too, the horses to her carriage, hired for her own visit to the Hales, and how Fanny had been ordered to go by Mr. Thornton, in order to pay every respect to them, Mrs. Thornton drew up slightly offended, and gave Margaret no sympathy, indeed, hardly any credit for the statement of her mother's indisposition. "'How is Mr. Thornton?' asked Mr. Hale. "'I was afraid he was not well, from his hurried note yesterday.' "'My son is rarely ill, and when he is, he never speaks about it, or makes it an excuse for not doing anything. He told me he could not get leisure to read with you last night, sir. He regretted it, I am sure. He values the hours spent with you.' "'I am sure they are equally agreeable to me,' said Mr. Hale. "'It makes me feel young again to see his enjoyment and appreciation of all that is fine in classical literature.' I have no doubt the classics are very desirable for people who have leisure, but, I confess, it was against my judgment that my son renewed his study of them. The time and place in which he lives seems to me to require all his energy and attention. Classics may do well for men who loiter away their lives in the country or in colleges, but Milton men ought to have their thoughts and powers absorbed by the work of to-day. At least, that is my opinion. This last clause she gave out with the pride that apes humility. But surely, if the mind is too long directed to one object only, it will get stiff and rigid, and be unable to take in many interests, said Margaret. I do not quite understand what you mean by a mind getting stiff and rigid. Nor do I admire those whirligig characters that are full of this thing to-day, to be utterly forgetful of it in their new interest to-morrow. Having many interests does not suit the life of a Milton manufacturer. It is, or ought to be, enough for him to have one great desire, and to bring all the purposes of his life to bear on the fulfilment of that. "'And that is?' asked Mr. Hale. Her sallow cheek flushed, and her eye lightened, as she answered. "'To hold and maintain a high, honourable place among the merchants of his country, the men of his town. Such a place my son has earned for himself. Go where you will. I don't say in England only, but in Europe. The name of John Thornton of Milton is known and respected amongst all men of business. Of course, it is unknown in the fashionable circles, she continued scornfully. Idle gentlemen and ladies are not likely to know much of a Milton manufacturer, unless he gets into Parliament, or marries a lord's daughter. Both Mr. Hale and Margaret had an uneasy, ludicrous consciousness that they had never heard of this great name, until Mr. Bell had written them word that Mr. Thornton would be a good friend to have in Milton. The proud mother's world was not their world of Harley Street gentilities on the one hand, or country clergymen and Hampshire squires on the other. Margaret's face, in spite of all her endeavours to keep it simply listening in its expression, told the sensitive Mrs. Thornton this feeling of hers. "'You think you have never heard of this wonderful son of mine, Miss Hale. 
you think i'm an old woman whose ideas are bounded by milton and whose own crow is the whitest ever seen no said margaret with some spirit it may be true that i was thinking i had hardly heard mr thornton's name before i came to milton but since i have come here i have heard enough to make me respect and admire him and to feel just how much justice and truth there is in what you have said of him who spoke to you of him asked mrs thornton a little mollified yet jealous lest any one else's words should not have done him full justice margaret hesitated before she replied she did not like this authoritative questioning mr hale came in as he thought to the rescue it was what mr thornton said himself that made us know the kind of man he was was it not margaret mrs thornton drew herself up and said my son is not the one to tell of his own doings may i ask you again miss hale from whose account you formed your favourable opinion of him a mother is curious and greedy of commendation of her children you know margaret replied it was as much from what mr thornton withheld of that which we had been told of his previous life by mr bell it was more that than what he said that made us all feel what reason you have to be proud of him mr bell what can he know of john he living a lazy life in a drowsy college but i am obliged to you miss hale many a missy young lady would have shrunk from giving an old woman the pleasure of hearing that her son was well spoken of why asked margaret looking straight at mrs thornton in bewilderment why because i suppose they might have consciences that told them how surely they were making the old mother into an advocate for them in case they had any plans on the son's heart she smiled a grim smile for she had been pleased by margaret's frankness and perhaps she felt that she had been asking questions too much as if she had a right to catechize margaret laughed outright at the notion presented to her laughed so merrily that it grated on mrs thornton's ear as if the words that called forth that laugh must have been utterly and entirely ludicrous margaret stopped her merriment as soon as she saw mrs thornton's annoyed look i beg your pardon madam but i am really very much obliged to you for exonerating me from making any plans on mr thornton's heart young ladies have before now said mrs thornton stiffly i hope miss thornton is well put in mr hale desirous of changing the current of the conversation she is as well as she ever is she is not strong replied mrs thornton shortly and mr thornton i suppose i may hope to see him on thursday i cannot answer for my son's engagements there is some uncomfortable work going on in the town a threatening of a strike if so his experience and judgment will make him much consulted by his friends but i should think he could come on thursday at any rate i am sure he will let you know if he cannot a strike asked margaret what for what are they going to strike for for the mastership and ownership of other people's property said mrs thornton with a fierce snort that is what they always strike for if my son's workpeople strike i will only say they are a pack of ungrateful hounds but i have no doubt they will they are wanting higher wages i suppose asked mr hale that is the face of the thing 
but the truth is they want to be masters and make the masters into slaves on their own ground they are always trying at it they always have it in their minds and every five or six years there comes a struggle between masters and men they'll find themselves mistaken this time i fancy a little out of their reckoning if they turn out they mayn't find it so easy to go in again i believe the masters have a thing or two in their heads which will teach the men not to strike again in a hurry if they try it this time does it not make the town very rough asked margaret of course it does but surely you are not a coward are you milton is not the place for cowards i have known the time when i have had to thread my way through a crowd of white angry men all swearing they would have makinson's blood as soon as he ventured to show his nose out of his factory and he knowing nothing of it some one had to go and tell him or he was a dead man and it needed to be a woman so i went and when i had got in i could not get out it was as much as my life was worth so i went up to the roof where there were stones piled ready to drop on the heads of the crowd if they tried to force the factory doors and i would have lifted those heavy stones and dropped them with as good an aim as the best man there but that i fainted with the heat i had gone through if you live in milton you must learn to have a brave heart miss hale i would do my best said margaret rather pale i do not know whether i am brave or not till i am tried but i am afraid i should be a coward south country people are often frightened by what our darkshire men and women only call living and struggling but when you've been ten years among a people who are always owing their betters a grudge and only waiting for an opportunity to pay it off you will know whether you are a coward or not take my word for it mr thornton came that evening to mr hale's he was shown up into the drawing-room where mr hale was reading aloud to his wife and daughter i am come partly to bring you a note from my mother and partly to apologize for not keeping my time yesterday the note contains the address you asked for dr donaldson thank you said margaret hastily holding out her hand to take the note for she did not wish her mother to hear that they had been making any inquiry about a doctor she was pleased that mr thornton seemed immediately to understand her feeling he gave her the note without another word of explanation mr hale began to talk about the strike mr thornton's face assumed a likeness to his mother's worst expression which immediately repelled the watching margaret yes the fools will have a strike let them it suits us well enough but we gave them a chance they think trade is flourishing as it was last year we see the storm on the horizon and draw in our sails but because we don't explain our reasons they won't believe we're acting reasonably we must give them line and letter for the way we choose to spend or save our money henderson tried a dodge with his men out at ashley and failed he rather wanted a strike it would have suited his book well enough so when the men came to ask for the five per cent they are claiming he said he'd think about it and give them his answer on the payday knowing all the while what his answer would be of course but thinking he'd strengthen their conceit of his own way however they were too deep for him and heard something about the bad prospects of trade so in they came on the friday and drew back their claim and now he's obliged to go on working 
but we Milton masters have to-day sent in our decision. We won't advance a penny. We tell them we may have to lower wages, but we can't afford to raise. So here we stand, waiting for their next attack. And what will that be? asked Mr. Hale. I conjecture a simultaneous strike. You will see Milton without smoke in a few days, I imagine, Miss Hale. But why? asked she. Could you not explain what good reason you have for expecting a bad trade? I don't know whether I used the right words, but you will understand what I mean. Do you give your servants reasons for your expenditures, or your economy in the use of your own money? We, the owners of capital, have a right to choose what we will do with it. A human right, said Margaret, very low. I beg your pardon, I did not hear what you said. I would rather not repeat it, she said. It related to a feeling which I do not think you would share. Won't you try me? pleaded he, his thoughts suddenly bent upon learning what she had said. She was displeased with his pertinacity, but did not choose to affix too much importance to her words. I said you had a human right. I meant that there seemed no reason but religious ones why you should not do what you like with your own. I know we differ in our religious opinions, but don't you give me credit for having some, though not the same as yours. He was speaking in a subdued voice, as if to her alone. She did not wish to be so exclusively addressed. She replied out in her usual tone. I do not think I have any occasion to consider your special religious opinions in the affair. All I meant to say is, that there is no human law to prevent the employers from utterly wasting or throwing away all their money if they choose, but that there are passages in the Bible which would rather imply, to me at least, that they neglected their duty as stewards if they did. However, I know so little about strikes, and rate of wages, and capital, and labor, that I had better not talk to a political economist like you. Nay, the more reason, said he eagerly, I shall only be too glad to explain to you all that may seem anomalous or mysterious to a stranger, especially at a time like this, when our doings are sure to be canvassed by every scribbler who can hold a pen. Thank you, she answered, coldly. Of course, I shall apply to my father in the first instance for any information he can give me, if I get puzzled with living here amongst this strange society. You think it strange? Why? I don't know. I suppose because, on the very face of it, I see two classes dependent on each other in every possible way, yet evidently regarding the interests of the other as opposed to their own. I never lived in a place before where there were two sets of people always running each other down. Who have you heard running the masters down? I don't ask who you have heard abusing the men, for I see you persist in misunderstanding what I said the other day. But who have you heard abusing the masters? Margaret reddened, then smiled as she said, I am not fond of being catechized. I refuse to answer your question. Besides, it has nothing to do with the fact. You must take my word for it, that I have heard some people, or, it may be, only someone of the work people, speak as though it were the interest of the employers to keep them from acquiring money that it would make them too independent if they had a sum in the savings-bank. "'I dare say it was that man Higgins who told you all this,' said Mrs. Hale. 
Mr. Thornton did not appear to hear what Margaret evidently did not wish him to know, but he caught it nevertheless. I heard, moreover, that it was considered to the advantage of the masters to have ignorant workmen, not hedge-lawyers, as Captain Lennox used to call those men in his company, who questioned and would know the reason for every order. This latter part of her sentence she addressed rather to her father than to Mr. Thornton. "'Who is Captain Lennox?' asked Mr. Thornton to himself, with a strange kind of displeasure that prevented him for the moment from replying to her. Her father took up the conversation. "'You were never fond of schools, Margaret, or you would have seen and known before this how much is being done for education in Milton.' "'No,' said she, with sudden meekness, I know I do not care enough about schools, but the knowledge and the ignorance of which I was speaking did not relate to reading and writing, the teaching or information one can give to a child. I am sure that what was meant was ignorance of the wisdom that shall guide men and women. I hardly know what that is, but he, that is, my informant, spoke as if the masters would like their hands to be merely tall, large children, living in the present moment with a blind, unreasoning kind of obedience. "'In short, Miss Hale, it is very evident that your informant found a pretty ready listener to all the slander he chose to utter against the masters,' said Mr. Thornton, in an offended tone. Margaret did not reply. She was displeased at the personal character Mr. Thornton affixed to what she had said. Mr. Hale spoke next. "'I must confess that—' although I have not become so intimately acquainted with any workman as Margaret has, I am very much struck by the antagonism between the employer and the employed, on the very surface of things. I even gather this impression from what you yourself have from time to time said. Mr. Thornton paused a while before he spoke. Margaret had just left the room, and he was vexed at the state of feeling between himself and her. However, the little annoyance, by making him cooler and more thoughtful, gave a greater dignity to what he said. My theory is that my interests are identical with those of my workpeople, and vice versa. Miss Hale, I know, does not like to hear men called hands, so I won't use that word, though it comes most readily to my lips as the technical term, whose origin, whatever it was, dates before my time. On some future day, in some millennium, in utopia, this unity may be brought into practice, just as I can fancy a republic the most perfect form of government. We will read Plato's Republic as soon as we have finished Homer. Well, in the Platonic year, it may fall out that we are all, men, women, and children, fit for a republic, but give me a constitutional monarchy in our present state of morals and intelligence. In our infancy we require a wise despotism to govern us. Indeed, Long past infancy, children and young people are the happiest under the unfailing laws of a discreet, firm authority. I agree with Miss Hale so far as to consider our people in the condition of children, while I deny that we, the masters, have anything to do with making or keeping them so. I maintain that despotism is the best kind of government for them, so that in the hours in which I come in contact with them I must necessarily be an autocrat. I will use my best discretion from no humbug or philanthropic feeling, of which we had rather too much in the North, to make wise laws and come to just decisions in the conduct of my business, laws and decisions which work for my own good in the first instance, for theirs in the second. 
but I will neither be forced to give my reasons, nor flinch from what I have once declared to be my resolution. Let them turn out. I shall suffer as well as they, but at the end they will find that I have not baited or altered one jot. Margaret had re-entered the room, and was sitting at her work, but she did not speak. Mr. Hale answered, "'I dare say I am talking in great ignorance, but from the little I know, I should say that the masses were already passing rapidly into the troublesome stage which intervenes between childhood and manhood in the life of the multitude as well as that of the individual. Now, the error which many parents commit in the treatment of the individual at this time is, insisting on the same unreasoning obedience as when all he had to do in the way of duty was to obey the simple laws of come when you're called and do as you're bid. But a wise parent humors the desire for independent action so as to become the friend and adviser when his absolute rule shall cease. If I get wrong in my reasoning, recollect, it is you who adopted the analogy. Very lately, said Margaret, I heard a story of what happened in Nuremberg only three or four years ago. A rich man there lived alone in one of the immense mansions which were formerly both dwellings and warehouses. It was reported that he had a child, but no one knew of it for certain. For forty years this rumor kept rising and falling, never utterly dying away. After his death it was found to be true. He had a son, an overgrown man with the unexercised intellect of a child, whom he had kept up in that strange way, in order to save him from temptation and error. But, of course, when this great old child was turned loose into the world, every bad counsellor had power over him. He did not know good from evil. His father had made the blunder of bringing him up in ignorance, and taking it for innocence, and after fourteen months of riotous living, the city authorities had to take charge of him, in order to save him from starvation. He could not even use words effectively enough to be a successful beggar. I used the comparison, suggested by Miss Hale, of the position of the master to that of a parent, so I ought not to complain of your turning the simile into a weapon against me. But, Mr. Hale, when you were setting up a wise parent as a model for us, you said he humoured his child in their desire for independent action. Now certainly, the time has not come for the hands to have any independent action during business hours. I hardly know what you would mean by it, then. And I say, that the masters would be trenching on the independence of their hands, in a way that I, for one, should not feel justified in doing, if we interfered too much with the life they lead out of the mills. Because they labour ten hours a day for us, I do not see that we have any right to impose leading-strings upon them for the rest of their time. I value my own independence so highly that I can fancy no degradation greater than that of having another man perpetually directing and advising and lecturing me or even planning too closely in any way about my actions. He might be the wisest of men, or the most powerful. I should equally rebel and resent his interference. I imagine this is a stronger feeling in the north of England than in the south. I beg your pardon. But is not that because there has been none of the equality of friendship between the adviser and advised classes? Because every man has had to stand in an unchristian and isolated position, apart from and jealous of his brother-man, constantly afraid of his rights being trenched upon? I only state the fact. 
i am sorry to say i have an appointment at eight o'clock and i must just take facts as i find them to-night without trying to account for them which indeed would make no difference in determining how to act as things stand the facts must be granted but said margaret in a low voice it seems to me as if it makes all the difference in the world her father made a sign for her to be silent and allow mr thornton to finish what he had to say he was already standing up and preparing to go you must grant me this one point given a strong feeling of independence in every darkshire man have i any right to obtrude my views of the manner in which he shall act upon another hating it as i should do most vehemently myself merely because he has labour to sell and i capital to buy not in the least said margaret determined to say just this one thing not in the least because of your labour and capital positions whatever they are but because you are a man dealing with a set of men over whom you have whether you reject the use of it or not immense power just because your lives and your welfare are so constantly and intimately interwoven god has made us so that we must be mutually dependent we may ignore our own dependence or refuse to acknowledge that others depend upon us in more respects than the payment of weekly wages but the thing must be nevertheless neither you nor any other master can help yourselves the most proudly independent man depends on those around him for their insensible influence on his character his life and the most isolated of all your darkshire egos has dependents clinging to him on all sides he cannot shake them off any more than the great rock he resembles can shake off pray don't go into similes margaret you have let us off once already said her father smiling yet uneasy at the thought that they were detaining mr thornton against his will which was a mistake for he rather liked it as long as margaret would talk although what she said only irritated him just tell me miss hale are you yourself ever influenced no that is not a fair way of putting it but if you are ever conscious of being influenced by others and not by circumstances have those others been working directly or indirectly have they been laboring to exhort to enjoin to act rightly for the sake of example or have they been simple true men taking up their duty and doing it unflinchingly without a thought of how their actions were to make this man industrious that man saving why if i were a workman i should be twenty times more impressed by the knowledge that my master was honest punctual quick resolute in all his doings and hands are keener spies even than valets than by any amount of interference however kindly meant with my ways of going on out of work hours i do not choose to think too closely on what i am myself but i believe i rely on the straightforward honesty of my hands and the open nature of their opposition in contradistinction to the way in which the turnout will be managed in some mills just because they know how i scorn to take a single dishonest advantage or to do an underhand thing myself it goes farther than a whole course of lectures on honesty is the best policy life diluted into words no no what the master is that the men will be without overmuch taking thought on his part that is a great admission said margaret laughing when i see men violent and obstinate in pursuit of their rights 
I may safely infer that the Master is the same, that he is a little ignorant of that spirit which suffereth long, and is kind, and seeketh not her own. "'You are just like all strangers who don't understand the working of our system, Miss Hale,' he said hastily. "'You suppose that our men are puppets of dough, ready to be moulded into any amiable form we please. You forget we have only to do with them for less than a third of their lives.' and you seem not to perceive that the duties of a manufacturer are far larger and wider than those merely of an employer of labor. We have a wide commercial character to maintain, which makes us into the great pioneers of civilization. "'It strikes me,' said Mr. Hale, smiling, "'that you might pioneer a little at home. They are a rough, heathenish set of fellows, these Milton men of yours.' "'They are that,' replied Mr. Thornton. Rosewater surgery won't do for them. Cromwell would have made a capital mill-owner, Miss Hale. I wish we had him to put down this strike for us. Cromwell is no hero of mine, she said, coldly. But I am trying to reconcile your admiration of despotism with your respect for other men's independence of character. He reddened at her tone. I choose to be the unquestioned and irresponsible master of my hands, during the hours that they labor for me. But those hours past, our relation ceases, and then comes in the same respect for their independence that I myself exact. He did not speak again for a minute. He was too much vexed. But he shook it off, and bade Mr. and Mrs. Hale good night. Then, drawing near to Margaret, he said in a lower voice, I spoke hastily to you once this evening, and I am afraid rather rudely. But you know I am but an uncouth Milton manufacturer. Will you forgive me? Certainly, she said, smiling up in his face, the expression of which was somewhat anxious and oppressed, and hardly cleared away as he met her sweet, sunny countenance, out of which all the north wind effect of their discussion had entirely vanished. But she did not put out her hand to him, and again he felt the omission, and set it down to pride. End of chapter 15。Chapter 16 of North and South by Elizabeth Gaskell. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Marianne. Chapter 16 The Shadow of Death. Trust in that veiled hand which leads none by the path that he would go, and always be for change prepared, for the world's law is ebb and flow. From the Arabic The next afternoon Dr. Donaldson came to pay his first visit to Mrs. Hale. The mystery that Margaret hoped their late habits of intimacy had broken through was resumed. She was excluded from the room, while Dixon was admitted. Margaret was not a ready lover, but when she loved, she loved passionately, and with no small degree of jealousy. She went into her mother's bedroom, just beyond the drawing-room, and paced it up and down, while awaiting the doctor's coming out. Every now and then she stopped to listen. She fancied she heard a moan. She clenched her hands tight, and held her breath. She was sure she heard a moan. Then all was still for a few minutes more, and then there was the moving of chairs, the raised voices, and all the little disturbances of leave-taking. 
When she heard the door open, she went quickly out of the bedroom. "'My father is from home, Dr. Donaldson. He has to attend a pupil at this hour. May I trouble you to come into his room downstairs?' She saw, and triumphed over all the obstacles which Dixon threw in her way, assuming her rightful position as daughter of the house in something of the spirit of the elder brother, which quelled the old servant's officiousness very effectually. Margaret's conscious assumption of this unusual dignity of demeanour towards Dixon gave her an instant's amusement in the midst of her anxiety. She knew, from the surprised expression on Dixon's face, how ridiculously grand she herself must be looking, and the idea carried her downstairs into the room. It gave her that length of oblivion from the keen sharpness of the recollection of the actual business at hand. Now, that came back, and seemed to take away her breath. It was a moment or two before she could utter a word. But she spoke with an air of command, as she asked, "'What is the matter with Mamma? "'You will oblige me by telling the simple truth.' Then, seeing a slight hesitation on the doctor's part, she added, "'I am the only child she has. "'Here, I mean. "'My father is not sufficiently alarmed, I fear, "'and, therefore, if there is any serious apprehension,' It must be broken to him gently. I can do this. I can nurse my mother. Pray, speak, sir. To see your face, and not be able to read it, gives me a worse dread than I trust any words of yours will justify. My dear young lady, your mother seems to have a most attentive and efficient servant, who is more like her friend. I am her daughter, sir. But when I tell you she expressly desired that you might not be told. I am not good or patient enough to submit to the prohibition. Besides, I am sure you are too wise, too experienced to have promised to keep the secret. Well, he said, half smiling, though sadly enough, there you are right. I did not promise. In fact, I fear, the secret will be known soon enough without my revealing it. He paused. Margaret went very white, and compressed her lips a little more. Otherwise not a feature moved. With the quick insight into character, without which no medical man can rise to the eminence of Dr. Donaldson, he saw that she would exact the full truth, that she would know if one iota was withheld, and that the withholding would be torture more acute than the knowledge of it. He spoke two short sentences in a low voice watching her all the time, for the pupils of her eyes dilated into a black horror, and the whiteness of her complexion became livid. He ceased speaking. He waited for that look to go off, for her gasping breath to come. Then she said, "'I thank you most truly, sir, for your confidence. That dread has haunted me for many weeks. It is a true, real agony.' "'My poor, poor mother!' Her lips began to quiver, and he let her have the relief of tears, sure of her power of self-control to check them. A few tears, those were all she shed, before she recollected the many questions she longed to ask. "'Will there be much suffering?' He shook his head. "'That we cannot tell. It depends on constitution, on a thousand things.' but the late discoveries of medical science have given us a large power of alleviation. 
"'My father,' said Margaret, trembling all over. "'I do not know, Mr. Hale. I mean, it is difficult to give advice. But I should say, bear on, with the knowledge you have forced me to give you so abruptly, till the fact which I could not withhold has become in some degree familiar to you, so that you may, without too great an effort, be able to give what comfort you can to your father. Before then, my visits, which, of course, I shall repeat from time to time, although I fear I can do nothing but alleviate, a thousand little circumstances will have occurred to awaken his alarm, to deepen it, so that he will be all the better prepared. Nay, my dear young lady, nay, my dear, I saw Mr. Thornton, and I honour your father for the sacrifice he has made, however mistaken I may believe him to be. Well, this once, if it will please you, my dear. Only remember, when I come again, I come as a friend, and you must learn to look upon me as such, because seeing each other, getting to know each other at such times as these, is worth years of morning calls. Margaret could not speak for crying, but she wrung his hand at parting. "'That's what I call a fine girl,' thought Dr. Donaldson, when he was seated in his carriage and had time to examine his ringed hand, which had slightly suffered from her pressure. "'Who would have thought that little hand could have given such a squeeze? But the bones were well put together, and that gives immense power. What a queen she is! With her head thrown back at first, to force me into speaking the truth, and then bent so eagerly forward to listen. Poor thing! I must see she does not overstrain herself. Though it's astonishing how much those thoroughbred creatures can do and suffer. That girl's game to the backbone. Another, who had gone that deadly color, could never have come round without either fainting or hysterics. But she wouldn't do either. Not she. And the very force of her will brought her round— such a girl as that would win my heart if I were thirty years younger. It's too late now. Ah, here we are at the archers. So out he jumped, with thought, wisdom, experience, sympathy, and ready to attend the calls made upon them by this family, just as if there were none other in the world. Meanwhile Margaret had returned into her father's study for a moment, to recover strength before going upstairs into her mother's presence. Oh, my God, my God, but this is terrible. How shall I bear it? Such a deadly disease. No hope. Oh, Mamma, Mamma, I wish I had never gone to Aunt Shaw's and been all those precious years away from you. Poor Mamma, how much she must have borne. Oh, I pray thee, my God, that her sufferings may not be too acute, too dreadful. How shall I bear to see them? How can I bear Papa's agony? He must not be told yet, not all at once. It would kill him. But I won't lose another moment of my own dear, precious mother. She ran upstairs. Dixon was not in the room. Mrs. Hale lay back in an easy chair, with a soft white shawl wrapped around her, and a becoming cap put on, in expectation of the doctor's visit. 
Her face had a little faint color in it, and the very exhaustion after the examination gave it a peaceful look. Margaret was surprised to see her look so calm. "'Why, Margaret, how strange you look! What is the matter?' And then, as the idea stole into her mind of what was indeed the real state of the case, she added, as if a little displeased, "'You have not been seeing Dr. Donaldson, and asking him any questions, have you, child?' Margaret did not reply, only looked wistfully towards her. Mrs. Hale became more displeased. "'He would not, surely, break his word to me, and—oh, yes, mamma, he did. I made him. It was I. Blame me.' She knelt down by her mother's side, and caught her hand. She would not let it go, though Mrs. Hale tried to pull it away. She kept kissing it, and the hot tears she shed bathed it. "'Margaret, it was very wrong of you. You knew I did not wish you to know.' But, as if tired with the contest, she left her hand in Margaret's clasp, and by and by she returned the pressure faintly. That encouraged Margaret to speak. "'Oh, Mamma, let me be your nurse. I will learn anything Dixon can teach me. But you know I am your child, and I do think I have a right to do everything for you.' "'You don't know what you are asking,' said Mrs. Hale, with a shudder. "'Yes, I do. I know a great deal more than you are aware of. Let me be your nurse. Let me try, at any rate. No one has ever, shall ever, try so hard as I will do. It will be such a comfort, Mamma. "'My poor child. Well, you shall try.' Do you know, Margaret, Dixon and I thought you would quite shrink from me if you knew. Dixon thought, said Margaret, her lip curling. Dixon could not give me credit for enough true love, for as much as herself. She thought, I suppose, that I was one of those poor sickly women who like to lie on rose leaves and be fanned all day. Don't let Dixon's fancies come any more between you and me, Mamma. Don't please implored she don't be angry with dixon said mrs hale anxiously margaret recovered herself no i won't i will try and be humble and learn her ways if only you will let me do all i can for you let me be in the first place mother i am greedy of that i used to fancy you would forget me while i was away at aunt shaw's and cry myself to sleep at night with that notion in my head. And I used to think, how will Margaret bear our makeshift poverty after the thorough comfort and luxury in Harley Street, till I have many a time been more ashamed of your seeing our contrivances at Helstone than of any stranger finding them out? Oh, Mamma, and I did so enjoy them. They were so much more amusing than all the jog-trot Harley Street ways, the wardrobe shelf with handles that served as a supper tray on grand occasions, and the old tea chest stuffed and covered for ottomans. I think what you call the makeshift contrivances at dear Helstone were a charming part of the life there. I shall never see Helstone again, Margaret, said Mrs. Hale, the tears welling up into her eyes. Margaret could not reply. Mrs. Hale went on. While I was there, 
I was forever wanting to leave it. Every place seemed pleasanter. And now I shall die far away from it. I am rightly punished. You must not talk so, said Margaret impatiently. He said you might live for years. Oh, mother, we will have you back at Hellstone yet. No, never. That I must take as a just penance. But, Margaret, Frederick. At the mention of that one word, she suddenly cried out loud, as if in some sharp agony. It seemed as if the thought of him upset all her composure, destroyed the calm, overcame the exhaustion. Wild, passionate cry succeeded to cry. Frederick! Frederick! Come to me! I am dying! Little firstborn child, come to me once again! She was in violent hysterics. Margaret went and called Dixon in terror. Dixon came in a huff, and accused Margaret of having over-excited her mother. Margaret bore all meekly, only trusting that her father might not return. In spite of her alarm, which was even greater than the occasion warranted, she obeyed all Dixon's directions promptly and well, without a word of self-justification. By so doing she mollified her accuser. They put her mother to bed, and Margaret sat by her till she fell asleep and afterwards till Dixon beckoned her out of the room, and, with a sour face, as if doing something against the grain, she bade her drink a cup of coffee which she had prepared for her in the drawing-room, and stood over her in a commanding attitude as she did so. "'You shouldn't have been so curious, miss, and then you wouldn't have needed to fret before your time. It would have come soon enough. And now, I suppose, you'll tell Master, and a pretty household I shall have of you.' No, Dixon, said Margaret, sorrowfully. I will not tell Papa. He could not bear it as I can. And by way of proving how well she bore it, she burst into tears. Aye, I knew how it would be. Now you'll waken your mamma, just after she's gone to sleep so quietly. Miss Margaret, my dear, I've had to keep it down this many a week, and though I don't pretend I can love her as you do, Yet I loved her better than any other man, woman, or child. No one but Master Frederick ever came near her in my mind. Ever since Lady Beersford's maid first took me in to see her dressed out in white crape, and corn ears, and scarlet poppies, and I ran a needle down into my finger, and broke it in, and she tore up her worked pocket-handkerchief after they'd cut it out, and came in to wet the bandages again with lotion when she returned from the ball, where she'd been the prettiest young lady of all. I've never loved any one like her. I little thought that I should live to see her brought so low. I don't mean no reproach to nobody. Many a one calls you pretty and handsome, and what not, even in this smoky place, enough to blind one's eyes. The owls can see that. But you'll never be like your mother for beauty. Never. Not if you live to be a hundred. Mamma is very pretty still. Poor Mamma. Now, don't ye set off again, or I shall give way at last. Whimpering. You'll never stand Master's coming home and questioning, at this rate. Go out and take a walk, and come in something like. Many's the time I've longed to walk it off. The thought of what was the matter with her, and how it must all end. 
"'Oh, Dixon,' said Margaret, "'how often I've been cross with you, "'not knowing what a terrible secret you had to bear.' "'Bless you, child. "'I like to see you showing a bit of spirit. "'It's the good old Beersford blood. "'Why, the last Sir John but two shot his steward down, "'there where he stood, "'just for telling him that he'd racked the tenants.' and he'd racked the tenants till he could get no more money off them than he could get skin off a flint. Well, Dixon, I won't shoot you, and I'll try not to be cross again. You never have. If I've said it at times, it's always been to myself, just in private, by way of making a little agreeable conversation, for there's no one here fit to talk to, and when you fire up, you're the very image of Master Frederick. I could find in my heart to put you in a passion any day, just to see his stormy look coming like a great cloud over your face. But now you go out, miss. I'll watch over missus. And as for master, his books are company enough for him if he should come in. I will go, said Margaret. She hung about Dixon for a minute or so, as if afraid and irresolute. Then suddenly kissing her, she went quickly out of the room. "'Bless her,' said Dixon. "'She's as sweet as a nut. "'There are three people I love. "'It's Mrs., Master Frederick, and her. "'Just them three. "'That's all. "'The rest be hanged, "'for I don't know what they're in the world for. "'Master was born, I suppose, "'for to marry Mrs. "'If I thought he loved her properly, "'I might get to love him in time. "'But he should have made a deal more on her.' and not been always reading, reading, thinking, thinking. See what it has brought him to. Many a one who never reads nor thinks either gets to be rector and dean and what not, and I dare say Master might, if he'd just minded Mrs., and let the weary reading and thinking alone. There she goes, looking out of the window as she heard the front door shut. Poor young lady! Her clothes looked shabby to what they did when she came to Hellstone a year ago. Then she hadn't so much as a darn stocking or a cleaned pair of gloves in all her wardrobe. And now... End of chapter 16「Chapter 17 of North and South by Elizabeth Gaskell. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Marianne. CHAPTER Seventeen, WHAT IS A STRIKE? There are briars besetting every path which call for patient care, and there is a cross in every lot, and an earnest need for prayer. Anonymous Margaret went out heavily and unwillingly enough. But the length of a street, yes, the air of a Milton street, cheered her young blood before she reached her first turning. Her step grew lighter, her lip redder. She began to take notice, instead of having her thoughts turned so exclusively inward. She saw unusual loiterers in the street, men with their hands in their pockets sauntering along, loud laughing and loud-spoken girls clustered together, apparently excited to high spirits, and a boisterous independence of temper and behavior. The more ill-looking of the men, the discreditable minority, hung about on the steps of the beer-houses and gin-shops, smoking and commenting pretty freely on every passer-by. 
margaret disliked the prospect of the long walk through these streets before she came to the fields which she had planned to reach instead she would go and see bessie higgins it would not be so refreshing as a quiet country walk but still it would perhaps be doing the kinder thing nicholas higgins was sitting by the fire smoking as she went in bessie was rocking herself on the other side nicholas took the pipe out of his mouth and standing up pushed his chair towards margaret he leant against the chimney-piece in a lounging attitude while she asked bessie how she was who's rather run down in the mouth regard to spirits but who's better in health who doesn't like this strike who's a deal too much set on peace and quietness at any price this is the third strike i've seen said she sighing as if that was answer and explanation enough well third time pays for all see if we don't dang the masters this time see if they don't come and beg us to come back at our own price that's all we've missed it aforetime i grant you but this time we lain our plans desperate deep why do you strike asked margaret striking is leaving off work till you get your own rate of wages is it not you must not wonder at my ignorance where i come from i never heard of a strike i wish i were there said bessie wearily but it's not for me to get sick and tired of strikes this is the last i'll see before it's ended i shall be in the great city the holy jerusalem who's so full of the life to come who cannot think of the present now i you see am bound to do the best i can here i think a bird in the hand is worth two in the bush so them's the different views we take on the strike question but said margaret if the people struck as you call it where i come from as they are mostly all field labourers the seed would not be sown the hay got in the corn reaped well said he he had resumed his pipe and put his well in the form of an interrogation why she went on what would become of the farmers he puffed away i reckon they'd either have to give up their farms or to give a fair rate of wage suppose they could not or would not do the last they could not give up their farms all in a minute however much they might like to do so but they would have no hay no corn to sell that year and where would the money come from to pay the labourers wages the next still puffing away at last he said i know not of your ways down south i have heard there are a pack of spiritless downtrodden men wheelie clemmed to death too much dazed with clemmin to know when they're put upon now it's not so here we known when we're put upon and ween too much blood in us to stand it we just take our hands from our looms and say you may clem us but you'll not put upon us my masters and be danged to em they shan't this time i wish i lived down south said bessie there's a great deal to bear there said margaret there are sorrows to bear everywhere there is very hard bodily labour to be gone through with very little food to give strength but it's out of doors said bessie and away from the endless endless noise and sickening heat it's sometimes in heavy rain and sometimes in bitter cold a young person can stand it 
but an old man gets racked with rheumatism and bent and withered before his time yet he must work on the same or else go to the workhouse i thought you were so taken with the ways of the south country so i am said margaret smiling a little as she found herself thus caught i only mean bessie there's good and bad in everything in this world and as you felt the bad up here i thought it was fair you should know the bad down there and you say they never strike down there asked nicholas abruptly no said margaret i think they have too much sense and i think replied he dashing the ashes out of his pipe with so much vehemence that it broke it's not that they've too much sense but that they've too little spirit oh father said bessie what have you gained by strikin think of that first strike when mother died how we all had to clem you the worst of all and yet many a one went in every week at the same wage till all were gone in that there was work for and some went beggars all their lives at after ay said he that their strike was badly managed folk got into the management of it as were either fools or not true men you'll see it'll be different this time but all this time you've not told me what you're striking for said margaret again why you see there's five or six masters who have set themselves again paying the wages they've been paying these two years past and flourishing upon and getting richer upon and now they've come to us and say we're to take less and we won't we'll just clem them to death first and see who'll work for em then they'll have killed the goose that laid em the golden eggs i reckon and so you plan dying in order to be revenged upon them no said he i do not i just look forward to the chance of dying at my post sooner than yield that's what folks call fine and honourable in a soldier and why not in a poor weaver chap but said margaret a soldier dies in the cause of the nation in the cause of others he laughed grimly my lass said he you're but a young wench and don't you think i can keep three people that's bessie mary and me on sixteen shillings a week don't you think it's for myself i'm striking work at this time it's just as much in the cause of others as yon soldier only may appen the cause he dies for is just that of somebody he's never clapped eyes on nor heerd on all his born days while i take up john boucher's case as lives next door but one we a sickly wife and eight children none of em factory age and i don't take up his cause only though he's a poor good-for-naught as can only manage two looms at a time but i take up the cause of justice why are we to have less wage now i ask than two year ago don't ask me said margaret i'm very ignorant ask some of your masters surely they will give you a reason for it it's not merely an arbitrary decision of theirs come to without reason you're just a foreigner and nothing more he said contemptuously but you'll know about it ask the masters they'd tell us to mind our own business and they'd mind theirs our business bein you understand to take the baited wage and be thankful and their business to bait us down to clemen point to swell their profits that's what it is but said margaret determined not to give way 
although she saw she was irritating him. The state of trade may be such, as not to enable them to give you the same remuneration. State of trade? That's just a piece of master's humbug. It's rate of wages I was talking of. The masters keep the state of trade in their own hands, and just walk it forward like a black bugaboo, to frighten naughty children with into being good. I tell you, it's their part, their cue, as some folks call it, to beat us down, to swell their fortunes, and it's ours to stand up and fight hard, not for ourselves alone, but for them round about us, for justice and fair play. We help to make their profits, and we ought to help spend em. It's not that we want their brass so much this time, as we've done many a time afore. We'n getting money laid by, and we're resolved to stand and fold together. Not a man on us will go in for less wage than the Union says is our due. So I say, hooray for the strike, and let Thornton, and Slickson, and Hamper, and their set look to it. Thornton, said Margaret. Mr. Thornton, of Marlborough Street. Aye, Thornton of Marlborough Mill, as we call him. He is one of the masters you are striving with is he not? What sort of a master is he? Do you ever see a bulldog? Set a bulldog on hind legs, and dress him up in coat and breeches, and yon just getten John Thornton. Nay, said Margaret, laughing, I deny that. Mr. Thornton is plain enough, but he's not like a bulldog, with its short broad nose, and snarling upper lip. No, not in look, I grant you, but let John Thornton get a hold of a notion, and he'll stick to it like a bulldog. You might pull him away with a pitchfork, ere he'd leave to go. He's worth fighting with, is John Thornton. As for Slickson, I take it some of these days he'll wheedle his men back with fair promises, that they'll just get cheated out of as soon as they're in his power again. He'll work his fines well out on em, I'll warrant. He's as slippery as an eel, he is. He's like a cat, as sleek and cunning and fierce. It'll never be an honest up-and-down fight with him, as it will be with Thornton. Thornton's as dour as a doornail, an obstinate chap, every inch on him, the old bulldog. Poor Bessie, said Margaret, turning round to her. You sigh over it all. You don't like struggling and fighting as your father does, do you? No she said heavily. I'm sick on it. I could have wished to have had other talk about me in my latter days than just the clashing and clanging and clattering that has wearied a my life long about work and wages and masters and hands and knobsticks. Poor wench! Latter days be fard. Thou'rt looking a slight better already for little stir and change. Beside, I shall be a deal here to make it more lively for thee. Tobacco smoke chokes me, she said querulously. Then I'll never smoke no more in the house, he replied tenderly. But why didst thou not tell me afore, thou foolish wench? She did not speak for a while, and then so low that only Margaret heard her. I reckon he'll want a the comfort he can get out o' either pipe or drink afore he's done. Her father went out of doors, evidently to finish his pipe. Bessie said passionately, "'Now am I not a fool? Am I not, miss? There, 
I knew I ought to keep father at home, and away for the folk that are always ready to tempt a man, in time of strike, to go drink. And there my tongue must needs quarrel with this pipe of his'n. And he'll go off, I know he will, as often as he wants to smoke, and nobody knows where it'll end. I wish I'd let him myself be choked first. But does your father drink? asked Margaret. No, not to say drink, replied she, still in the same wild, excited tone. But what win ye have? There are days with you, as with other folk, I suppose, when you get up and go through the hours, just longing for a bit of change, a bit of Philip, as it were. I know I hae gone and bought a four-pounder, out of another baker's shop, to common on such days, just because I sickened at the thought of going on for ever, with the same sight in my eyes, and the same sound in my ears, and the same taste in my mouth, and the same thought, or no thought, for that matter, in my head, day after day, for ever. I've longed for to be a man to go spreein', even it were only to tramp to some new place in search of work. And father, all men, have it stronger in em than me, to get tired of sameness and work for ever. And what is em to do? It's little blame to them if they go to the gin-shop for to make their blood flow quicker, and more lively, and to see things they never see at no other time, pictures, and looking-glass, and such like. But father never was a drunkard, though maybe he's got worse for drink now and then. Only you see, and now her voice took a mournful pleading tone, at times a strike there's much to knock a man down, for all they start so hopefully, and where's the comfort to come fro? He'll get angry and mad, they all do, and then they get tired out with being angry and mad, and maybe had done things in their passion they'd be glad to forget. Bless your sweet, pitiful face, but you don't know what a strike is yet. Come, Bessie, said Margaret, I won't say you're exaggerating, because I don't know enough about it, but perhaps as you're not well, you're only looking on one side, and there is another, and brighter to be looked to. It's all well enough for you to say, who have lived in pleasant green places all your life long, and never known want or care, or wickedness either, for that matter. Take care, said Margaret, her cheek flushing, and her eyes lightening. How you judge, Bessie. I shall go home to my mother, who is so ill, so ill, Bessie, that there's no outlet but death for her out of the prison of her great suffering. And yet I must speak cheerfully to my father, who has no notion of her real state, and to whom the knowledge must come gradually. The only person, the only one who could sympathize with me and help me, whose presence could comfort my mother more than any other earthly thing, is falsely accused, would run the risk of death if he came to see his dying mother. This I tell you, only you, Bessie. You must not mention it. No other person in Milton, hardly any other person in England, knows. Have I not care? Do I not know anxiety, though I go about well-dressed, and have food enough? Oh, Bessie, God is just, and our lots are well portioned out by Him, although none but He knows the bitterness of our souls. I ask your pardon, replied Bessie, humbly. 
sometimes, when I've thought of my life, and the little pleasure I've had in it, I've believed that, maybe, I was one of those doomed to die by the falling of a star from heaven. And the name of the star is called Wormwood. And the third part of the waters became Wormwood, and men died of the waters, because they were made bitter. One can bear pain and sorrow better if one thinks it has been prophesied long before for one. Somehow, then it seems as if my pain was needed for the fulfilment. Other ways it seems all sent for nothing. Nay, Bessie, think, said Margaret, God does not willingly afflict. Don't dwell so much on the prophecies, but read the clearer parts of the Bible. I dare say it would be wiser, but where would I hear such grand words of promise? Here tell I anything so far different for this dreary world, and this town above a, as in Revelations. Many's the time I've repeated the verses in the seventh chapter to myself, just for the sound. It's as good as an organ, and as different from every day, too. No, I cannot give up Revelations. It gives me more comfort than any other book i the Bible. Let me come and read you some of my favourite chapters. Aye, she said greedily, come. Father will maybe hear you. He's devilled with me talking, and he says it's all not to do with the things of the day, and that's his business. Where's your sister? Gone fusty and cutting. I were loath to let her go, but somehow we must live, and the union can't afford us much. Now I must go. You have done me good, Bessie. I done you good? Yes, I came here very sad, and rather too apt to think my own cause for grief was the only one in the world, and now I hear how you have had to bear for years, and that makes me stronger. Bless you. I thought a the good doing was on the side of gentlefolk. I shall get proud if I think I can do good to you. You won't do it if you think about it, but you'll only puzzle yourself if you do. That's one comfort. You're not like no one I ever seed. I don't know what to make o' you. Nor I of myself. Good-bye. Bessie stilled her rocking to gaze after her. I wonder if there are many folk like her down south. She's like a breath of country air, somehow. She freshens me up above a bit. Who'd have thought that face, as bright and as strong as the angel I dream of, could have known the sorrow she speaks on? I wonder how she'll sin. All of us must sin. I think a deal on her, for sure. But father does the like, I see. And Mary, even. It's not often who's stirred up to notice much. End of chapter 17「eighteen of North and South by Elizabeth Gaskell. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Marianne. Chapter eighteen Likes and Dislikes. My heart revolts within me, and two voices make themselves audible within my bosom. Wallenstein. On Margaret's return home, she found two letters on the table. One was a note for her mother. The other, which had come by post, was evidently from her Aunt Shaw, covered with foreign postmarks, thin, 
silvery and rustling. She took up the other, and was examining it when her father came in suddenly. "'So your mother is tired, and gone to bed early. I'm afraid such a thundery day was not the best in the world for the doctor to see her. What did he say? Dixon tells me he spoke to you about her.' Margaret hesitated. Her father's looks became more grave and anxious. "'He does not think her seriously ill.' "'Not at present.' She needs care, he says. He was very kind, and said he would call again, and see how his medicines worked. Only care. He did not recommend change of air. He did not say the smoky town was doing her any harm, did he, Margaret? No, not a word, she replied, gravely. He was anxious, I think. Doctors have that anxious manner. It's professional said he. Margaret saw, in her father's nervous ways, that the first impression of possible danger was made upon his mind, in spite of all his making light of what she told him. He could not forget the subject, could not pass from it to other things. He kept recurring to it through the evening, with an unwillingness to receive even the slightest unfavorable idea, which made Margaret inexpressibly sad. "'This letter's from Aunt Shaw, Papa,' She has got to Naples, and finds it too hot, so she has taken apartments at Sorrento, but I don't think she likes Italy. He did not say anything about diet, did he? It was to be nourishing and digestible. Mama's appetite is pretty good, I think. Yes, and that's what makes it all the more strange he should have thought of speaking about diet. I asked him, Papa. Another pause. Then Margaret went on. Aunt Shaw says she has sent me some coral ornaments, Papa, but, added Margaret, half smiling, she's afraid the Milton dissenters won't appreciate them. She has got all her ideas of dissenters from the Quakers, has not she? If you ever hear or notice that your mother wishes for anything, be sure you let me know. I am so afraid she does not tell me always what she would like. Pray, See after that girl Mrs. Thornton named. If we had a good, efficient house-servant, Dixon could be constantly with her, and I'd answer for it. We'd soon set her up amongst us, if care will do it. She's been very much tired of late, with the hot weather, and the difficulty of getting a servant. A little rest will put her quite to rights, eh, Margaret? I hope so, said Margaret, but so sadly that her father took notice of it. He pinched her cheek. Come, if you look so pale as this, I must rouge you up a little. Take care of yourself, child, or you'll be wanting the doctor next. But he could not settle to anything that evening. He was continually going backwards and forwards, on laborious tiptoe, to see if his wife was still asleep. Margaret's heart ached at his restlessness, his trying to stifle and strangle the hideous fear that was looming out of the dark places of his heart. He came back at last, somewhat comforted. She's awake now, Margaret. She quite smiled as she saw me standing by her. Just her old smile. And she says she feels refreshed, and ready for tea. Where's the note for her? She wants to see it. I'll read it to her while you make tea. 
the note proved to be a formal invitation from mrs thornton to mr mrs and miss hale to dinner on the twenty-first instant margaret was surprised to find an acceptance contemplated after all she had learnt of sad probabilities during the day but so it was the idea of her husband's and daughter's going to this dinner had quite captivated mrs hale's fancy even before margaret had heard the contents of the note it was an event to diversify the monotony of the invalid's life and she clung to the idea of their going with even fretful pertinacity when margaret objected nay margaret if she wishes it i'm sure we'll both go willingly she would never wish it unless she felt herself really stronger really better than we thought she was eh margaret said mr hale anxiously as she prepared to write the note of acceptance the next day eh margaret questioned he with a nervous motion of his hands it seemed cruel to refuse him the comfort he craved for and besides his passionate refusal to admit the existence of fear almost inspired margaret herself with hope i do think she is better since last night said she her eyes look brighter and her complexion clearer god bless you said her father earnestly but is it true yesterday was so sultry every one felt ill it was a most unlucky day for mr donaldson to see her on so he went away to his day's duties now increased by the preparation of some lectures he had promised to deliver to the working people at a neighbouring lyceum he had chosen ecclesiastical architecture as his subject rather more in accordance with his own taste and knowledge than as falling in with the character of the place or the desire for particular kinds of information among those to whom he was to lecture and the institution itself being in debt was only too glad to get a gratis course from an educated and accomplished man like mr hale let the subject be what it might well mother asked mr thornton that night who have accepted your invitations for the twenty-first fanny where are the notes the slicksons accepted collingbrook's accept stevenson's accept brown's decline hale's father and daughter come mother too great an invalid macpherson's come mr horsfall and mr young i was thinking of asking the porters as the browns can't come very good do you know i'm really afraid mrs hale is very far from well from what dr donaldson says it's strange of them to accept a dinner invitation if she's very ill said fanny i didn't say very ill said her brother rather sharply i only said very far from well they may not know it either and then he suddenly remembered that from what dr donaldson had told him margaret at any rate must be aware of the exact state of the case very probably they are quite aware of what you said yesterday john of the great advantage it would be to them to mr hale i mean to be introduced to such people as the stevensons and the collingbrooks i am sure that motive will not influence them no i think i understand how it is john said fanny laughing in her little weak nervous way how you profess to understand these hales and how you will never allow that we can know anything about them are they really so very different to most people one meets with she did not mean to vex him but if she had intended it 
she could not have done it more thoroughly. He chafed in silence, however, not deigning to reply to her question. "'They do not seem to me out of the common way,' said Mrs. Thornton. "'He appears a worthy kind of man enough, rather too simple for trade. So perhaps it's as well he should have been a clergyman first, and now a teacher. She's a bit of a fine lady, with her invalidism. And as for the girl, she's the only one who puzzles me when I think about her, which I don't often do. She seems to have a great notion of giving herself airs, and I can't make out why. I could almost fancy she thinks herself too good for her company at times. And yet they're not rich. From all I can hear, they never have been. And she's not accomplished, Mamma. She can't play. Go on, Fanny. What else does she want to bring her up to your standard? Nay, John, said his mother. That speech of Fanny's did no harm. I myself heard Miss Hale say she could not play. If you would let us alone, we could perhaps like her, and see her merits. I'm sure I never could, murmured Fanny, protected by her mother. Mr. Thornton heard, but did not care to reply. He was walking up and down the dining-room, wishing that his mother would order candles, and allow him to set to work at either reading or writing, and so put a stop to the conversation. But he never thought of interfering in any of the small domestic regulations that Mrs. Thornton observed, in habitual remembrance of her old economies. "'Mother,' said he, stopping, and bravely speaking out the truth, "'I wish you would like Miss Hale.' "'Why?' asked she, startled by his earnest, yet tender manner. "'You're never thinking of marrying her, a girl without a penny.' "'She would never have me,' said he, with a short laugh. "'No, I don't think she would,' answered his mother. "'She laughed at my face when I praised her for speaking out something Mr. Bell had said in your favour. I liked the girl for doing it so frankly, for it made me sure she had no thought of you— and the next minute she vexed me so by seeming to think—well, never mind. Only you're right in saying she's too good an opinion of herself to think of you. The saucy jade! I should like to know where she'd find a better. If these words hurt her son, the dusky light prevented him from betraying any emotion. In a minute he came up quite cheerfully to his mother, and putting one hand lightly on her shoulder, said, Well— I'm just as much convinced of the truth of what you have been saying as you can be, and as I have no thought or expectation of ever asking her to be my wife, you'll believe me for the future that I'm quite disinterested in speaking about her. I foresee trouble for that girl, perhaps want of motherly care, and I only wish you to be ready to be a friend to her, in case she needs one. Now, Fanny, said he, I trust you have delicacy enough to understand that it is as great an injury to Miss Hale as to me. In fact, she would think it a greater, to suppose that I have any reason, more than I now give, for begging you and my mother to show her every kind attention. I cannot forgive her pride, said his mother. I will befriend her, if there is need, for your asking, John. I would befriend Jezebel herself, if you asked me. But this girl, who turns up her nose at us all, who turns up her nose at you? Nay, mother, I have never yet put myself, 
and I mean never to put myself within reach of her contempt. Contempt, indeed! One of Mrs. Thornton's expressive snorts. Don't go on speaking of Miss Hale, John, if I've to be kind to her. When I'm with her, I don't know if I like or dislike her most, but when I think of her, and hear you talk of her, I hate her. I can see she's given herself airs to you, as well as you'd told me out. And if she has, said he, and then he paused for a moment, then went on, I'm not a lad, to be cowed by a proud look from a woman, or to care for her misunderstanding me and my position. I can laugh at it. To be sure, and at her, too, with her fine notions and haughty tosses. I only wonder why you talk so much about her, then, said Fanny. I'm sure I'm tired enough of the subject. Well, said her brother, with a shade of bitterness, suppose we find some more agreeable subject. What do you say to a strike, by way of something pleasant to talk about? Have the hands actually turned out? asked Mrs. Thornton, with vivid interest. Harper's men are actually out. Mine are working out their week, through fear of being prosecuted for breach of contract. I've had every one of them up and punished for it, that left his work before his time was out. The law expenses would have been more than the hands themselves were worth. A set of ungrateful knots, said his mother. To be sure. But I'd have shown them how I kept my word, and how I mean them to keep theirs. They know me by this time. Slickson's men are off. Pretty certain he won't spend money in getting them punished. We're in for a turnout, mother. I hope there are not many orders in hand. Of course there are. They know that well enough. But they don't quite understand all, though they think they do. What do you mean, John? Candles had been brought, and Fanny had taken up her interminable piece of worsted work, over which she was yawning, throwing herself back in her chair, from time to time, to gaze at vacancy, and think of nothing at her ease. Why, said he, the Americans are getting their yarns so into the general market, that our only chance is producing them at a lower rate. If we can't, we may shut up shop at once, and hands and masters go alike on tramp. Yet these fools go back to the prices paid three years ago. Nay, some of their leaders quote Dickinson's prices now, though they know as well as we do, what with fines pressed out of their wages as no honourable man would extort them, and other ways which I for one would scorn to use. The real rate of wage paid at Dickinson's is less than at ours. Upon my word, mother, I wish the old combination laws were in force. It's too bad to find out that fools, ignorant wayward men like these, just by uniting their weak silly heads, are to rule over the fortunes of those who bring all the wisdom that knowledge and experience, and often painful thought and anxiety, can give. The next thing will be, indeed, we're all but come to it now, that we shall have to go and ask, stand hat in hand, and humbly ask the secretary of the spinners' union to be so kind as to furnish us with labour at their own price. That's what they want. They, who haven't the sense to see that, if we don't get a fair share of the profits to compensate us for our wear and tear here in England, we can move off to some other country, and that, what with home and 
foreign competition we are none of us likely to make above a fair share and may be thankful enough if we can get that in an average number of years can't you get hands from ireland i wouldn't keep these fellows a day i'd teach them that i was master and could employ what servants i liked yes to be sure i can and i will too if they go on long it will be trouble and expense and i fear there will be some danger but i will do it rather than give in if there is to be all this extra expense i am sorry we're giving a dinner just now so am i not because of the expense but because i shall have much to think about and many unexpected calls on my time but we must have had mr hornsfall and he does not stay in milton long and as for the others we owe them dinners and it's all one trouble he kept on with his restless walk not speaking any more but drawing a deep breath from time to time as if endeavouring to throw off some annoying thought fanny asked her mother numerous small questions all having nothing to do with the subject which a wiser person would have perceived was occupying her attention consequently she received many short answers she was not sorry when at ten o'clock the servants filed in to prayers these her mother always read first reading a chapter they were now working steadily through the old testament when prayers were ended and his mother had wished him a good night with that long steady look of hers which conveyed no expression of the tenderness that was in her heart but yet had the intensity of a blessing mr thornton continued his walk all his business plans had received a check a sudden pull-up from this approaching turnout the forethought of many anxious hours was thrown away utterly wasted by their insane folly which would injure themselves even more than him though no one could set any limit to the mischief they were doing and these were the men who thought themselves fitted to direct the masters in the disposal of their capital hamper had said only this very day that if he were ruined by the strike he would start life again comforted by the conviction that those who brought it on were in a worse predicament than he himself for he had head as well as hands while they had only hands and if they drove away their market they could not follow it nor turn to anything else but this thought was no consolation to mr thornton it might be that revenge gave him no pleasure it might be that he valued the position he had earned with the sweat of his brow so much that he keenly felt its being endangered by the ignorance or folly of others so keenly that he had no thoughts to spare for what would be the consequences of their conduct to themselves he paced up and down setting his teeth a little now and then at last it struck two the candles were flickering in their sockets he lighted his own muttering to himself once for all they shall know whom they have to deal with i can give them a fortnight no more if they don't see their madness before the end of that time i must have hands from ireland i believe it's slickson's doing confound him and his dodges he thought he was overstocked so he seemed to yield at first when the deputation came to him and of course he only confirmed them in their folly as he meant to do that's where it spread from end of chapter eighteen
Chapter Nineteen of North and South by Elizabeth Gaskell. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Marianne. Chapter Nineteen, Angel Visits. As angels in some brighter dreams call to the soul when man doth sleep, so some strange thoughts transcend our wonted themes, and into glory peep. Henry Vaughan. Mrs. Hale was curiously amused and interested by the idea of the Thornton dinner-party. She kept wondering about the details, with something of the simplicity of a little child, who wants to have all its anticipated pleasures described beforehand. But the monotonous life led by invalids often makes them like little children, inasmuch as they have neither of them any sense of proportion in events, and seem each to believe that the walls and curtains which shut in their world and shut out everything else, must of necessity be larger than anything hidden beyond. Besides, Mrs. Hale had had her vanities as a girl, and perhaps unduly felt their mortification when she became a poor clergyman's wife. They had been smothered and kept down, but they were not extinct, and she liked to think of seeing Margaret dressed for a party, and discussed what she should wear, with an unsettled anxiety that amused Margaret, who had been more accustomed to society in her one in Harley Street than her mother in five-and-twenty years of Hellstone. "'Then you think you shall wear your white silk. Are you sure it will fit? It's nearly a year since Edith was married.' "'Oh, yes, Mamma. Mrs. Murray made it, and it's sure to be right. It may be a straw's breadth shorter or longer wasted, according to my having grown fat or thin, but I don't think I've altered in the least. Hadn't you better let Dixon see it? It may have gone yellow with lying by. If you like, Mamma. But if the worst comes to the worst, I've a very nice pink gauze, which Aunt Shaw gave me, only two or three months before Edith was married. That can't have gone yellow. No, but it may have faded. Well, then I've a green silk. I feel more as if it was the embarrassment of riches. "'I wish I knew what you ought to wear,' said Mrs. Hale, nervously. Margaret's manner changed instantly. "'Shall I go and put them on, one after another, Mamma? And then you could see which you liked best?' "'But—yes, perhaps that will be best.' So off to Margaret went. She was very much inclined to play some pranks when she was dressed up at such an unusual hour— to make her rich white silk balloon out into a cheese, to retreat backwards from her mother as if she were the queen, but when she found that these freaks of hers were regarded as interruptions to the serious business, and as such annoyed her mother, she became grave and sedate. What had possessed the world, her world, to fidget so about her dress, she could not understand. But that very afternoon, on naming her engagement to Bessie Higgins, Apropos of the servant that Mrs. Thornton had promised to inquire about, Bessie quite roused up at the intelligence. "'Dear, and are you going to dine at Thornton's, at Marlborough Mills?' "'Yes, Bessie. Why are you so surprised?' "'Oh, I don't know. But they visit with a the first folk in Milton. "'And you don't think that we're quite the first folk in Milton, eh, Bessie?' Bessie's cheeks flushed a little at her thought being thus easily read. "'Well,' said she, 
you'll see they think in a deal o' money here and i reckon you've not getten much no said margaret that's very true but we are educated people and have lived amongst educated people is there anything so wonderful in our being asked out to dinner by a man who owns himself inferior to my father by coming to him to be instructed i don't mean to blame mr thornton few draper's assistants as he was once could have made themselves what he is but can you give dinners back in your small house thornton's house is three times as big well i think we could manage to give mr thornton a dinner back as you call it perhaps not in such a large room nor with so many people but i don't think we've thought about it at all in that way i never thought you'd be dining with the thorntons repeated bessie why the mayor himself dines there and the members of parliament and all i think i could support the honour of meeting the mayor of milton but them ladies dress so grand said bessie with an anxious look at margaret's print gown which her milton eyes appraised at sevenpence a yard margaret's face dimpled up into a merry laugh thank you bessie for thinking so kindly about my looking nice among all the smart people but i've plenty of grand gowns a week ago i should have said they were far too grand for anything i should ever want again but as i'm to dine at mr thornton's and perhaps to meet the mayor i shall put on my very best gown you may be sure what when you wear asked bessie somewhat relieved white silk said margaret a gown i had for a cousin's wedding a year ago that'll do said bessie falling back in her chair i should be loath to have you looked down upon oh i'll be fine enough if that will save me from being looked down upon in milton i wish i could see you dressed up said bessie i reckon you're not what folk would call pretty you've not red and white enough for that but dun you know i hae dreamed o you long afore i ever seed you nonsense bessie ay but i did your very face looking with your clear steadfast eyes out of the darkness with your hair blown off from your brow and going out like rays round your forehead which was just as smooth and as straight as it is now and you're always coming to give me strength which I seemed to gather out of your deep comfort and eyes, and you were dressed in shining raiment, just as you're going to be dressed, so, you see, it was you. Nay, Bessie, said Margaret gently, it was but a dream. And why might I nay dream a dream in my affliction as well as others? Did not many a one I the Bible? Ay, and see visions too. Why, even my father thinks a deal o' dreams. I tell you again, I saw you as plainly, coming swiftly towards me, with your hair blown back with the very swiftness of the motion, just like the way it grows, a little standing off like, and the white shining dress on you've gotten to wear. Let me come and see you in it. I want to see you, and touch you, as in very deed you were in my dream. My dear Bessie, it's quite a fancy of yours. Fancy or no fancy? you've come as i knew you would when i saw your movement in my dream and when you're here about me i reckon i feel easier in my mind and comforted just as a fire comforts one on a dree day you said it were on the twenty-first please god i'll come and see you oh bessie you may come and welcome 
but don't talk so. It really makes me sorry. It does, indeed. Then I'll keep it to myself, if I bite my tongue out. Not but what it's true, for all that. Margaret was silent. At last she said, Let us talk about it sometimes, if you think it true. But not now. Tell me, has your father turned out? Aye, said Bessie, heavily, in a manner very different from that she had spoken in but a minute or two before. He and many another, all hampers men, and many a one beside. The women are as bad as the men, in their savageness, this time. Food is high, and they mun have food for their children, I reckon. Suppose Thornton's set em their dinner out. The same money, spent on potatoes and meal, would keep many a crying baby quiet, and hush up its mother's heart for a bit. "'Don't speak so,' said Margaret. "'You make me feel wicked and guilty in going to this dinner.' "'No,' said Bessie. "'Some's pre-elected to sumptuous feasts, and purple and fine linen. "'Maybe you're one on em. "'Others toil and moil all their lives long, "'and the very dogs are not pitiful in our days, "'as they were in the days of Lazarus. "'But if you ask me to cool your tongue with the tip of my finger, "'I'll come across the great gulf to you, "'just for the thought of what you've been to me here.' "'Bessie, you're very feverish. "'I can tell it in the touch of your hand, "'as well as in what you're saying. "'It won't be division enough, in that awful day, "'that some of us have been beggars here, "'and some of us have been rich. "'We shall not be judged by that poor accident, "'but by our faithful following of Christ.' "'Margaret got up, and found some water, "'and soaking her pocket-handkerchief in it, "'she laid the cool wetness on Bessie's forehead, "'and began to chafe the stone-cold feet. "'Bessie shut her eyes, and allowed herself to be soothed. "'At last she said, "'You'd have been delved out o' your five wits, as well as me, "'if you'd had one body after another coming in to ask for father, "'and staying to tell me each one their tale. "'Some spoke a deadly hatred.' and made my blood run cold, with the terrible things they said o' the masters. But more, being women, kept plaining, plaining, with the tears running down their cheeks, and never wiped away, nor heeded, of the price o' meat, and how their children could not sleep at nights for the hunger. "'And do they think the strike will mend this?' asked Margaret. "'They say so,' replied Bessie. They do say trade has been good for long, and the masters has no end of money. How much father doesn't know, but, in course, the union does, and, as is natural, they want in their share of the profits, now that food is getting dear, and the union says they'll not be doing their duty if they don't make the masters give em their share. But masters has gotten the upper hand somehow, and I'm feared they'll keep it now and for evermore. It's like the great battle. Oh, Armageddon, the way they keep on, grinning and fighting at each other, till even while they fight they are picked off into the pit. Just then Nicholas Higgins came in. He caught his daughter's last words. Aye, and I'll fight on, too, and I'll get it this time. It'll not take long for to make em give in, for they've gotten a pretty lot of orders, all under contract, and they'll soon find out they'd better give us our five per cent, than lose the profit they'll gain, let alone the fine for not filling the contract. 
Aha! My masters! I know who'll win. Margaret fancied from his manner that he must have been drinking, not so much from what he said as from the excited way in which he spoke, and she was rather confirmed in this idea by the evident anxiety Bessie showed to hasten her departure. Bessie said to her, The twenty-first, that's Thursday week. I may come and see you dressed for Thornton's, I reckon. What time is your dinner? Before Margaret could answer, Higgins broke out. Thornton's! Are to go in to dine at Thornton's. Ask him to give you a bumper to the success of his orders. By the twenty-first, I reckon, he'll be pottered in his brains how to get em done in time. Tell him, there's seven hundred'll come marching into Marlborough Mills the morning after he gives the five per cent, and will help him through his contract in no time. You'll have em all there, my master, Hamper. He's one of the old-fashioned sort. Ne'er meets a man bout an oath or a curse. I should think he were going to die if he spoke me civil. But arter all, his bark's war than his bite, and you may tell him one of his turnouts said so, if you like. Eh, but you'll have a lot of prize mill owners at Thornton's. I should like to get speech of them when they're a bit inclined to sit still after dinner, and couldn't run for the life on em. I'd tell em my mind. I'd speak up again the hard way they're driving on us. Good-bye, said Margaret, hastily. Good-bye, Bessie. I shall look to see you on the twenty-first, if you're well enough. The medicines and treatment which Dr. Donaldson had ordered for Mrs. Hale did her so much good at first that not only she herself, but Margaret, began to hope that he might have been mistaken, and that she could recover permanently. As for Mr. Hale, although he had never had an idea of the serious nature of their apprehensions, he triumphed over their fears with an evident relief which proved how much his glimpse into the nature of them had affected him. Only Dixon croaked for ever into Margaret's ear. However, Margaret defied the raven, and would hope. They needed this gleam of brightness indoors, for out of doors, even to their uninstructed eyes, there was a gloomy, brooding appearance of discontent. Mr. Hale had his own acquaintances among the working men, and was so depressed with their earnestly told tales of suffering and long endurance. They would have scorned to speak of what they had to bear to any one who might, from his position, have understood it without their words. But here was this man, from a distant country, who was perplexed by the workings of the system into the midst of which he was thrown. And each was eager to make him a judge, and to bring witness of his own causes for irritation. Then Mr. Hale brought all his budget of grievances, and laid it before Mr. Thornton, for him, with his experience as a master, to arrange them, and explain their origin, which he always did, on sound economical principles, showing that, as trade was conducted, there must always be a waxing and waning of commercial prosperity, and that in the waning a certain number of masters, as well as of men, must go down into ruin and be no more seen among the ranks of the happy and prosperous. He spoke as if this consequence were so entirely logical, that neither employers nor employed had any right to complain if it became their fate, the employer to turn aside from the race he could no longer run, with a bitter sense of incompetency and failure, wounded in the struggle, trampled down by his fellows in their haste to get rich, slighted where he once was honoured humbly asking for, 
instead of bestowing, employment with a lordly hand. Of course, speaking so of the fate that, as a master, might be his own in the fluctuations of commerce, he was not likely to have more sympathy with that of the workmen, who were passed by in the swift, merciless improvement or alteration which would fain lie down and quietly die out of the world that needed them not, but felt as if they could never rest in their graves, for the clinging cries of the beloved and helpless they would leave behind, who envied the power of the wild bird that can feed her young with her very heart's blood. Margaret's whole soul rose up against him when he reasoned in this way, as if commerce were everything and humanity nothing. She could hardly thank him for the individual kindness which brought him that very evening to offer her, for the delicacy which made him understand that he must offer her privately, every convenience for illness that his own wealth or his mother's foresight had caused them to accumulate in their household, and which, as he learnt from Dr. Donaldson, Mrs. Hale might possibly require. His presence, after the way he had spoken, his bringing before her the doom which she was vainly trying to persuade herself might yet be averted from her mother, all conspired to set Margaret's teeth on edge, as she looked at him and listened to him. What business had he to be the only person, except Dr. Donaldson and Dixon, admitted to the awful secret which she held shut up in the most dark and sacred recess of her heart, not daring to look at it, unless she invoked heavenly strength to bear the sight, that, some day soon, she should cry aloud for her mother, and no answer would come out of the blank, dumb darkness. Yet he knew all. She saw it in his pitying eyes. She heard it in his grave and tremulous voice. How reconcile those eyes, that voice, with the hard reasoning, dry, merciless way in which he laid down axioms of trade, and serenely followed them out to their full consequences. The discord jarred upon her inexpressibly, the more because of the gathering woe of which she heard from Bessie. To be sure, Nicholas Higgins, the father, spoke differently. He had been appointed a committeeman, and said that he knew secrets of which the exoteric knew nothing. He said this more expressly and particularly on the very day before Mrs. Thornton's dinner-party, when Margaret, going in to speak to Bessie, found him arguing the point with Boucher, the neighbour of whom she had frequently heard mention, and as by turns exciting Higginson's compassion, as an unskilful workman with a large family depending on him for support, and at other times enraging his more energetic and sanguine neighbour by his want of what the latter called spirit. It was very evident that Higgins was in a passion when Margaret entered. Boucher stood, with both hands on the rather high mantelpiece, swaying himself a little on the support which his arms, thus placed, gave him, and looking wildly into the fire, with a kind of despair that irritated Higgins, even while it went to his heart. Bessie was rocking herself violently backwards and forwards, as was her wont, Margaret knew by this time, when she was agitated. Her sister Mary was tying on her bonnet, in great clumsy bows, as suited her great clumsy fingers, to go to her fustian cutting, blubbering out loud the while, and evidently longing to be away from a scene that distressed her. Margaret came in upon this scene. 
she stood for a moment at the door. Then, her finger on her lips, she stole to a seat on the squab near Bessie. Nicholas saw her come in, and greeted her with a gruff but not unfriendly nod. Mary hurried out of the house, catching gladly at the open door, and crying aloud when she got away from her father's presence. It was only John Bowker that took no notice whatever of who came in and who went out. "'It's no use, Higgins. Who cannot live long, eh, listen? Who's just sinking away? Not for want of meat, herself, but because who cannot stand the sight of the little one's clemmin. Ay, clemmin. Five shillings a week may do well enough for thee, with but two mouths to fill, and one on em a wench who can weally earn her own meat. But it's clemmin to us. And I tell thee plain, if who dies, as I'm feared who will afore we're getting the five per cent, I'll fling the money back in the master's face and say, Be doomed to ye, be doomed to the whole cruel world o' ye, that could nay lee me the best wife that ever bore childer to a man. And look thee, lad, I'll hate thee, and the whole pack o' the union. Ay, and chase ye through heaven with my hatred. I will, lad, I will, if you're leading me astray in this matter. Thou saidst, Nicholas, on Wednesday senate, and now it's Tuesday of the second week, that afore a fortnight we'd ha the masters come a-begging to us to take back our work, at our own wage. And time's nearly up. And there's a lyle jack lying abed, too weak to cry, but just every now and then sobbing up his heart for want of food. Our lyle jack, I tell thee, lad, who's never looked up since he was born, and who loves him as if he were her very life, as he is, for I reckon he'll have cost me that precious price, our lyle jack, who wakened me each morn with putting his sweet little lips to my great rough foul face, a seeking a smooth place to kiss. And he lies clemmin. Here the deep sobs choked the poor man, and Nicholas looked up, with eyes brimful of tears, to Margaret, before he could gain courage to speak. Hold up, man. The loud jack shall nay clem. I ha get him brass, and we'll go buy the chap a sup of milk and a good four-pounder this very minute. What's mine's thine, sure enough. I thou'st I want. Only, dunna lose heart, man, continued he, as he fumbled in a teapot for what money he had. I lay yo my heart and soul will win for a this. It's but barren on one more week, and you'll just see the way the masters'll come round, praying on us to come back to our mills. And the union, that's to say, I, will take care you've everything for the children and the missus. So do not turn faint heart, and go to the tyrants a seek and work. The man turned round at these words turned round a face so white and gaunt and tear-furrowed and hopeless that its very calm forced margaret to weep you know well that a worser tyrant than e'er the masters were says clem to death and see a may clem to death ere you dare go again the union you know it well nicholas for a you're one on em you may be kind hearts each separate but once bend together you've no more pity for a man than a wild, hunger-maddened wolf. Nicholas had his hand on the lock of the door. He stopped and turned round on Boucher, 
close following so help me god man alive if i think not i'm doing best for thee and for all on us if i'm going wrong when i think i'm going right it's their sin who hae left me where i am in my ignorance i hae thought till my brains ached belie me john i have and i say again there's no hope for us but having faith i the union they'll win the day see if they do not not one word had margaret or bessie spoken they had hardly uttered the sighing that the eyes of each called to the other to bring up from the depths of her heart at last bessie said i never thought to hear father call on god again but you heard him say so help me god yes said margaret let me bring you what money i can spare let me bring you a little food for that poor man's children don't let them know it comes from any one but your father it will be but little bessie lay back without taking any notice of what margaret said she did not cry she only quivered up her breath my heart's drained dry o tears said she boucher's been in these days past a telling me of his fears and his troubles he's but a weak kind o chap i know but he's a man for a that and though I've been angry many a time before now, we him and his wife has knew no more nor how him to manage, yet, you see, all folks isn't wise, yet God lets em live, ay, and gives em someone to love, and be loved by, just as good as Solomon, and, if sorrow comes to them they love, it hurts em as sore as e'er it did Solomon. I can't make it out. Perhaps it's as well such a one as Boucher has the union to see after him. But I'd like for to see the mean has make the union, and put em one by one face to face with Boucher. I reckon, if they heard him, they'd tell him, if I cotched em one by one, he might go back and get what he could for his work, even if it weren't so much as they ordered. Margaret sat utterly silent. How was she ever going to go away into comfort and forget that man's voice, with the tone of unutterable agony, telling more by far than his words of what he had to suffer? She took out her purse. She had not much in it of what she could call her own, but what she had she put into Bessie's hand, without speaking. "'Thank you. There's many on em gets no more, and it's not so bad off.' leastways does not show it as he does but father won't let em want now he knows you see boucher's been pulled down wi his childer and her being so cranky and a they could pawn has gone this last twelve month you're not to think we'd hae letten em clem for all we're a bit pressed oursel if neighbours doesn't see after neighbours i dunna who will Bessie seemed almost afraid lest Margaret should think they had not the will, and, to a certain degree, the power of helping one whom she evidently regarded as having a claim upon them. Besides, she went on, father is sure and positive the masters must give in, within these next few days, that they cannot hold out much longer. But I thank you all the same. I thank you for myself, as much as for Boucher for it just makes my heart warm to you more and more. 
Bessie seemed much quieter today, but fearfully languid and exhausted. As she finished speaking, she looked so faint and weary that Margaret became alarmed. "'It's not,' said Bessie. "'It's not death yet. I had a fearful night with dreams, or somewhat like dreams, for I were wide awake, and I'm all in a swounding daze today. Only yon poor chap made me alive again. No, it's not death yet, but death is not far off. I cover me up, and I'll maybe sleep, if the cough will let me. Good night, good afternoon, Map and I should say, but the light is dim and misty today. End of chapter 19「Twenty of North and South by Elizabeth Gaskell. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Marianne. Chapter Twenty, Men and Gentlemen. Old and young, boy, let em all eat. I have it. Let em have ten tire of teeth apiece. I care not. Rollo, Duke of Normandy. Margaret went home so painfully occupied with what she had heard and seen that she hardly knew how to rouse herself up to the duties which awaited her, the necessity for keeping up a constant flow of cheerful conversation for her mother, who, now that she was unable to go out, always looked to Margaret's return from the shortest walk as bringing in some news. "'And can that factory friend of yours come on Thursday to see you dressed?' "'She was so ill I never thought of asking her.' said Margaret, dolefully. "'Dear, everybody is ill now, I think,' said Mrs. Hale, with a little of the jealousy which one invalid is apt to feel of another. "'But it must be very sad to be ill in one of those little back streets,' her kindly nature prevailing, and the old Hellstone habits of thought returning. "'It's bad enough here. What could you do for her, Margaret? Mr. Thornton has sent me some of his old port wine since you went out.' Would a bottle of that do her good, think you? No, Mamma. I don't believe they are very poor. At least, they don't speak as if they were. And, at any rate, Bessie's illness is consumption. She won't want wine. Perhaps I might take her a little preserve, made of our dear Hellstone fruit. No. There's another family to whom I should like to give. Oh, Mamma! Mamma! How am I to dress up in my finery, and go off and away to smart places, after the sorrow I have seen to-day?" exclaimed Margaret, bursting the bounds she had preordained for herself before she came in, and telling her mother of what she had seen and heard at Higgins's cottage. It distressed Mrs. Hale excessively. It made her restlessly irritated, till she could do something. She directed Margaret to pack up a basket in the very drawing-room, to be sent there and then to the family and was almost angry with her for saying that it would not signify if it did not go till morning, as she knew Higgins had provided for their immediate wants, and she herself had left money with Bessie. Mrs. Hale called her unfeeling for saying this, and never gave herself breathing time till the basket was sent out of the house. Then she said, "'After all, we may have been doing wrong. It was only the last time Mr. Thornton was here that he said—' 
those were not true friends who helped to prolong the struggle by assisting the turnouts and this boucher man was a turnout was he not the question was referred to mr hale by his wife when he came upstairs fresh from giving a lesson to mr thornton which had ended in conversation as was their wont margaret did not care if their gifts had prolonged the strike she did not think far enough for that in her present excited state mr hale listened and tried to be as calm as a judge he recalled all that had seemed so clear not half an hour before as it came out of mr thornton's lips and then he made an unsatisfactory compromise his wife and daughter had not only done quite right in this instance but he did not see for a moment how they could have done otherwise nevertheless as a general rule it was very true what mr thornton said that as the strike if prolonged must end in the master's bringing hands from a distance if indeed the final results were not as it had often been before the invention of some machine which would diminish the need of hands at all why it was clear enough that the kindest thing was to refuse all help which might bolster them up in their folly but as to this boucher he would go and see him first thing in the morning and try and find out what could be done for him mr hale went the next morning as he proposed he did not find boucher at home but he had a long talk with his wife promised to ask for an infirmary order for her and seen the plenty provided by mrs hale and somewhat lavishly used by the children who were masters downstairs in their father's absence he came back with a more consoling and cheerful account than margaret had dared to hope for indeed what she had said the night before had prepared her father for so much worse a state of things that by a reaction of his imagination he described all as better than it really was but i will go again and see the man himself said mr hale i hardly know as yet how to compare one of these houses with our hellstone cottages i see furniture here which our labourers would never have thought of buying and food commonly used which they would consider luxuries yet for these very families there seems no other resource now that their weekly wages are stopped but the pawn-shop one had need to learn a different language and measure by a different standard up here in milton bessie too was rather better this day still she was so weak that she seemed to have entirely forgotten her wish to see margaret dressed if indeed that had not been the feverish desire of a half delirious state margaret could not help comparing this strange dressing of hers to go where she did not care to be her heart heavy with various anxieties with the old merry girlish toiletries that she and edith had performed scarcely more than a year ago her only pleasure now in decking herself out was in thinking that her mother would take delight in seeing her dressed she blushed when dixon throwing the drawing-room door open made an appeal for admiration miss hale looks well ma'am doesn't she mrs shaw's coral couldn't have come in better it just gives the right touch of colour ma'am otherwise miss margaret you would have been too pale margaret's black hair was too thick to be plaited it needed rather to be twist round and round and have its fine silkiness compressed into massive coils that encircled her head like a crown and then were gathered into a large spiral knot behind she kept its weight together by two large coral pins like small arrows for length her white silk sleeves were looped up with strings of the same material and on her neck just below the base of her curved and milk-white throat there lay heavy coral beads 
oh margaret how i should like to be going with you to one of the old barrington assemblies taking you as lady beersford used to take me margaret kissed her mother for this little burst of maternal vanity but she could hardly smile at it she felt so much out of spirits i would rather stay at home with you much rather mamma nonsense darling be sure you notice the dinner well i shall like to hear how they manage these things in milton particularly the second course dear look what they have instead of game mrs hale would have been more than interested she would have been astonished if she had seen the sumptuousness of the dinner-table and its appointments margaret with her london cultivated taste felt the number of delicacies to be oppressive one half of the quantity would have been enough and the effect lighter and more elegant but it was one of mrs thornton's rigorous laws of hospitality that of each separate dainty enough should be provided for all the guests to partake if they felt inclined careless to abstemiousness in her daily habits it was part of her pride to set a feast before such of her guests as cared for it her son shared this feeling he had never known though he might have imagined and had the capability to relish any kind of society but that which depended on an exchange of superb meals and even now though he was denying himself the personal expenditure of an unnecessary sixpence and had more than once regretted that the invitations for this dinner had been sent out still as it was to be he was glad to see the old magnificence of preparation margaret and her father were the first to arrive mr hale was anxiously punctual to the time specified there was no one upstairs in the drawing-room but mrs thornton and fanny every cover was taken off and the apartment blazed forth in yellow silk damask and a brilliantly flowered carpet every corner seemed filled up with ornament until it became a weariness to the eye and presented a very strange contrast to the bald ugliness of the lookout into the great mill-yard where wide folding gates were thrown open for the admission of carriages the mill loomed high on the left-hand side of the windows casting a shadow down from its many stories which darkened the summer evening before its time my son was engaged up to the last moment on business he will be here directly mr hale may i beg you to take a seat mr hale was standing at one of the windows as mrs thornton spoke he turned away saying don't you find such a close neighbourhood to the mill rather unpleasant at times she drew herself up never i am not become so fine as to desire to forget the source of my son's wealth and power besides there is not such another factory in milton one room alone is two hundred and twenty square yards i meant that the smoke and noise the constant going out and coming in of the workpeople might be annoying i agree with you mr hale said fanny there's a continual smell of steam and oily machinery and the noise is perfectly deafening i have heard noise that was called music far more deafening the engine room is at the street end of the factory we hardly hear it except in summer weather when all the windows are open and as for the continual murmur of the workpeople it disturbs me no more than the humming of a hive of bees if i think of it at all i connect it with my son and feel how all belongs to him and that he is the head that directs it just now there are no sounds to come from the mill 
the hands have been ungrateful enough to turn out, as perhaps you have heard. But the very business, of which I spoke when you entered, had reference to the steps he is going to take, to make them learn their place. The expression on her face, always stern, deepened into dark anger as she said this. Nor did it clear away when Mr. Thornton entered the room, for she saw, in an instant, the weight of care and anxiety which he could not shake off, although his guest received from him a greeting that appeared both cheerful and cordial. He shook hands with Margaret. He knew it was the first time their hands had met, though she was perfectly unconscious of the fact. He inquired after Mrs. Hale, and heard Mr. Hale's sanguine, hopeful account, and glancing at Margaret, to understand how far she agreed with her father, he saw that no dissenting shadow crossed her face. And as he looked with this intention, he was struck anew with her great beauty. He had never seen her in such dress before, and yet now it appeared as if such elegance of attire was so befitting her noble figure and lofty serenity of countenance that she ought to go always thus apparelled. She was talking to Fanny, about what he could not hear. But he saw his sister's restless way of continually arranging some part of her gown, her wandering eyes, now glancing here, now there, but without any purpose in her observation, and he contrasted them uneasily with the large, soft eyes that looked forth steadily at one object, as if from out their light beamed some gentle influence of repose. The curving lines of the red lips, just parted in the interest of listening to what her companion said, the head a little bent forward, so as to make a long sweeping line from the summit, where the light caught on the glossy raven hair, to the smooth ivory tip of the shoulder, the round white arms and taper hands, lightly laid across each other, but perfectly motionless in their pretty attitude. Mr. Thornton sighed, as he took in all this with one of his sudden comprehensive glances, and then he turned his back to the young ladies, and threw himself, with an effort, but with all his heart and soul, into a conversation with Mr. Hale. More people came, more and more. Fanny left Margaret's side, and helped her mother to receive her guests. Mr. Thornton felt that in this influx no one was speaking to Margaret, and was restless under this apparent neglect. But he never went near her himself. He did not look at her. Only, he knew what she was doing, or not doing, better than he knew the movements of anyone else in the room. Margaret was so unconscious of herself, and so much amused by watching other people, that she never thought whether she was left unnoticed or not. Somebody took her down to dinner. She did not catch the name, nor did he seem much inclined to talk to her. There was a very animated conversation going on among the gentlemen. The ladies, for the most part, were silent, employing themselves in taking notes of the dinner and criticizing each other's dresses. Margaret caught the clue in the general conversation, grew interested, and listened attentively. Mr. Horsfall, the stranger, whose visit to the town was the original germ of the party, was asking questions relative to the trade and manufactures of the place, and the rest of the gentlemen, all Milton men, were giving him answers and explanations. Some dispute arose, which was warmly contested. It was referred to Mr. Thornton, who had hardly spoken before but who now gave an opinion, the grounds of which were so clearly stated that even the opponents yielded. 
Margaret's attention was thus called to her host. His whole manner as master of the house, and entertainer of his friends, was so straightforward, yet simple and modest, as to be thoroughly dignified. Margaret thought she had never seen him to so much advantage. When he had come to their house, there had always been something, either of over-eagerness or that kind of vexed annoyance, which seemed ready to presuppose that he was unjustly judged, and yet felt too proud to try and make himself better understood. But now, among his fellows, there was no uncertainty as to his position. He was regarded by them as a man of great force of character, of power in many ways. There was no need to struggle for their respect. He had it, and he knew it, and the security of this gave a fine grand quietness to his voice and ways, which Margaret had missed before. He was not in the habit of talking to ladies, and what he did say was a little formal. To Margaret herself he hardly spoke at all. She was surprised to think how much she enjoyed this dinner. She knew enough now to understand many local interests, nay, even some of the technical words employed by the eager mill-owners. She silently took a very decided part in the question they were discussing. At any rate, they talked in desperate earnest not in the used-up style that wearied her so in the old London parties. She wondered that with all this dwelling on the manufacturers and trades of the place no allusion was made to the strike then pending. She did not yet know how coolly such things were taken by the masters as having only one possible end. To be sure, the men were cutting their own throats, as they had done many a time before. But if they would be fools— and put themselves into the hands of a rascally set of paid delegates, they must take the consequences. One or two thought Thornton looked out of spirits, and, of course, he must lose by this turnout. But it was an accident that might happen to themselves any day, and Thornton was as good to manage a strike as any one, for he was as iron a chap as any in Milton. The hands had mistaken their man in trying that dodge on him, and they chuckled inwardly at the idea of the workmen's discomfiture and defeat, in their attempt to alter one iota of what Thornton had decreed. It was rather dull for Margaret after dinner. She was glad when the gentlemen came, not merely because she caught her father's eye to brighten her sleepiness up, but because she could listen to something larger and grander than the petty interests which the ladies had been talking about. She liked the exultation in the sense of power which these Milton men had. It might be rather rampant in its display, and savour of boasting, but still they seemed to defy the old limits of possibility, in a kind of fine intoxication, caused by the recollection of what had been achieved, and what yet should be. In her cooler moments she might not approve of their spirit in all things. Still there was much to admire in their forgetfulness of themselves, and the present, in their anticipated triumphs over all inanimate matter at some future time which none of them should live to see. She was rather startled when Mr. Thornton spoke to her, close at her elbow. "'I could see you were on our side in our discussion at dinner, were you not, Miss Hale?' "'Certainly. But then I know so little about it. I was surprised, however, to find from what Mr. Horsfall said that there were others who thought in so diametrically opposite a manner, as the Mr. Morrison he spoke about. He cannot be a gentleman. Is he? 
I am not quite the person to decide on another's gentlemanliness, Miss Hale. I mean, I don't quite understand your application of the word. But I should say that this Morrison is no true man. I don't know who he is. I merely judge him from Mr. Horsfall's account. I suspect my gentleman includes your true man. And a great deal more, you would imply. I differ from you. A man to me is a higher and a completer being than a gentleman. What do you mean? asked Margaret. We must understand the words differently. I take it that gentleman is a term that only describes a person in his relation to others. But when we speak of him as a man, we consider him not merely with regard to his fellow men, but in relation to himself, to life, to time, to eternity. A castaway lonely as Robinson Crusoe, a prisoner immured in a dungeon for life, nay, even a saint in Patmos, has his endurance, his strength, his faith, best described by being spoken of as a man. I am rather weary of this word gentlemanly, which seems to me to be often inappropriately used, and often, too, with such exaggerated distortion of meaning, while the full simplicity of the noun man and the adjective manly are unacknowledged, that I am induced to class it with the cant of the day. Margaret thought a moment, but before she could speak her slow conviction, he was called away by some of the eager manufacturers, whose speeches she could not hear, though she could guess at their import by the short, clear answers Mr. Thornton gave, which came steady and firm as the boom of a distant minute-gun. They were evidently talking of the turnout, and suggesting what course had best be pursued. She heard Mr. Thornton say, "'That has been done.' There came a hurried murmur, in which two or three joined. "'All those arrangements have been made.' Some doubts were implied, some difficulties named by Mr. Slickson, who took hold of Mr. Thornton's arm, the better to impress his words. Mr. Thornton moved slightly away, lifted his eyebrows a very little, and then replied, "'I take the risk. You need not join in it unless you choose.' Still some more fears were urged. "'I am not afraid of anything so dastardly as incendiarism. We are open enemies, and I can protect myself from any violence that I apprehend, and I will assuredly protect all others who come to me for work.' They know my determination by this time, as well and as fully as you do. Mr. Horsfall took him a little on one side, as Margaret conjectured, to ask him some other question about the strike, but, in truth, it was to inquire who she herself was, so quiet, so stately, and so beautiful. A Milton lady, he asked, as the name was given. No, from the south of England, Hampshire, I believe was the cold, indifferent answer. Mrs. Slickson was catechizing Fanny on the same subject. "'Who is that fine, distinguished-looking girl? A sister of Mr. Horsfall's?' "'Oh, dear, no! That is Mr. Hale, her father, talking now to Mr. Stevens. He gives lessons. That is to say, he reads with young men. My brother John goes to him twice a week, and so he begged Mamma to ask them here, in hopes of getting him known. I believe we have some of their prospectuses, if you would like to have one. Mr. Thornton, does he really find time to read with a tutor? 
in the midst of all his business, and this abominable strike in hand as well. Fanny was not sure, from Mrs. Slickson's manner, whether she ought to be proud or ashamed of her brother's conduct, and, like all people who try and take other people's ought for the rule of their feelings, she was inclined to blush for any singularity of action. Her shame was interrupted by the dispersion of the guests. End of chapter 20「BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C.